0: Welcome to Far Realms Radio. I'm Skyler, And I'm Justin. This is our podcast of many things.
1: Where we give you eldritch advice to improve your Dungeons and Dragons games.
0: Let's dive in. Welcome to Far Realms Radio. Today's episode covers the role of dice in our game. I think, uh, I, this is something I had never thought about until you actually, I think, brought it up to me, that, that the dice have a specific role in the, I just took it for granted, you know? They always were part of the game. It's like, oh yeah, it's a thing you use, whatever, it's fine.
1: Well, I think it's understandable given that dice have been around for 5,000 years and it's kind of just something we associate with gaming always.
0: Yeah, but the dice are iconic for D&D, right? They're, they're just especially the d20 it's part of it you know whenever you think of strange polyhedral dice non-six-sided dice not flipping a coin it's
1: d. you think of role-playing games
0: mainly dnd right and only in the sub-genres are you like oh we're in d10 for white wolf or that or, random d30 right or gurps or whatever it is you know
1: anyway but yeah do you remember when you first saw the uh the dice of d and what that was like
0: yeah i didn't understand it in I, my friend invited me over to his basement, and we were gonna try this game and I didn't know what it was and I he had bro- broke out these ugly looking old original dice they were the solid colored like yellow orange green black red white and I think the d20 was
1: orange if I recall it was usually orange or yellow the oldest ones were just white
0: yeah this was the second edition set. So, And okay. I looked at them and I was like, these are weird looking ugly game dice. Are we gambling? What is this? It doesn't make any sense, you know. And then he, uh, he explained that we use the dice. It took me kind of a while to understand how in the game or the relationship of sides of a die to power generally.
1: Well, yeah, you've never seen those that many sides before.
0: No, and really, talking to you, I'm, I'm uh, now just realizing maybe that there's a relationship to uh, agency in the sides of the dice, which is why the 20, you know, is like the biggest of the ones you get, and it's the one that represents personal agency, not just how good your weapon does. It also fits spell. nicely
1: yeah. into 100, into like 5% increments.
0: Yeah, easy math.
1: So, I don't know, it...
0: It didn't captivate me at first, and uh, it wasn't until we've been playing for a while that I started to develop superstition around dice, as we all do. You know, like you had to get your own set, I guess, at some point. So, how do you pick it? That's that's really the first question. Is and maybe this is a good question for you. When you picked your first set of dice, what 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 made the
1: influence? Why did you pick it? <sighs> oh man, what did they look for like? The first set of dice? I probably bought a bunch of dice off the bat at a gaming store. They were all you know plastic polyurethane. I definitely got like cool colors, like combo colors, like black into and the red. Oh, and, yeah, I was a teenage boy. So, you know, anything black and red and cool. <laughs> um, but I eventually went on. I kind of got obsessed with dice collecting, and I had everything from, you know, the D100 to the little crystal shaped variant dice that I got because I hated rolling D4s. Oh and yeah! And I ended up getting yeah. a whole set of those, <laughs> and they're like the crystalline shaped ones, which are kind of interesting. You roll, you literally roll them Gem dice. You toss them. Uh, hey, but yeah, yeah. I, I very much see for me the dice were like, oh cool, and I immediately jumped onto that because for me it was like. A little bit of we all do this—a form of personal expression of our character. Like this dice, like matches the character.
0: Yeah, that was exactly what it was for me. Like, how right. do you find the dice that that your dice feel like they match the character slash me? Which it's you know nascent teenage boyhood, but
1: anyway. But yeah, I really latched onto the dice right away. I was like, wow, we got way more dice than other games. This is awesome, and so I was big on those. But I think the uh, we should talk about the specific dice and go through them real quick um so the d4 is a tetrahedron they're all polyhedrals that's what that one's called um you'll usually see it like pyramid shaped or sometimes in that like crystalline shape also known as a caltrop a caltrop yeah exactly uh you have the d6 which is probably the most widely recognized dice around the world these days the d6 it is a cube um you have the d8 was an octahedron
0: fun the- trivia about the d6 the the d sixes that they use in gambling halls are actually to precision spec. They're handmade. They also have to be like certain weights in certain ways, yep. and if they're able to you're able to prove that they're not, then it's illegal. They're There's usually, like regulation around this stuff.
1: Yeah, they're actually usually um, designated by the square versus the round corner on those type of dice that you see. And a lot of the ones apparently for casinos are actually, some of them are handmade to be like precise. Interesting. Um, though when you look at other forms of dice and production, a lot of the time machinery is now more accurate. Uh, like if you're actually trying to get like a super, super random D20, getting one that's machine made precisely out of something like aluminum is probably your best bet.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really about the weight and how consistent you can get it. You can get it pretty good today. I think random dice, it's not uh Chesix, It's,
1: Level Up has the best ones um, that I've seen. Mains.
0: There's one. There's one that that focuses a lot on the precision of their dice and the randomness I of think their dice. Level
1: Up's definitely one of them that does that. Um, but anyway, you got those. The D10, the pentagonal trapezohedron, was actually the last dice to join the group, or the last die, excuse me. Dice being plural, die being singular. We'll probably mess that up a lot of times though <laughs> on this this episode. So apologies in advance. Um, then we have the D12, which is probably the most fun to say. The dodecahedron.
0: This is the one that I remember making the connection as a nascent teenage boy between geometry class and all of these stupid Greek Mm -hmm. names that I had to learn for stuff, and then the dice. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I did learn about this. This is called a dodecahedron. I've never seen, oh, nifty. And I felt like I was both smart and dumb at the same time. going back to my
1: gaming group and being like, you know what this is called, guys? It's (laughs) not a D12. It's a dodecahedron. Learned that today. And then, of course, you have the icosahedron. I'm probably saying that wrong, the D20. No,
0: icosahedron is right. And they, when I asked my math teacher at the time about the icosahedron, he didn't know what it was, which should tell you something about the quality of my math teacher. <laughs> but but it was an interesting moment for me. I was like, oh, I see.
1: It's one of those teenage moments where you feel really smart. You're
0: just reading from the curriculum, and you don't actually know what you're... Never
1: mind. Uh, never mind about
0: the icosahedron teacher. It's fine.
1: But yeah, the uh, so those are the main dice you're going to see D&D. They've pretty much all been around since the beginning, except for the D10. So I did some research on the D10. Um, the D10 was added in 1980. Actually, I think officially at a convention um, was where you first they first officially introduced the D10. Uh, before that, you did percentage rolls in different ways uh, using a D20. Right. Hmm. The first patent, though, for the D10, I was trying to find out where, you know, where the D10 come from, the oldest one, because it's technically different in terms of the geometry than a lot of the other shapes. And we'll get into that later. Um, but the oldest patent I was able to find was from 1906, a U.S. patent. And it was for an unknown gaming apparatus. And it's kind of fascinating because, like, you can actually download the patent and look at it. And there it is. It's a D10. Right. But I don't know what they used it for. Clearly, White Wolf would love us to say their game way back then, Right? But we know it's not true. Not true. Uh, the first U.S. patent for D20, like, in comparison, was for 1925. Um, but the D20, we have, you know, D20s from ancient Egypt that are thousands of years old. That was just the first U.S. patent. Uh, but you see these because this is important because it shows you why it was difficult for Gary, Guy, X, and them to get these dice when they first started.
0: Interesting. I mean, you think about how you would manufacture it, right? Like,
1: Well, they, they had to get it from China. There's no tooling anywhere. There, there was no manufacturers making them here, really. Right. And so apparently they got them from China. And back then, those were really more geometry teaching tools, I suppose, than they were random dice. You actually can see pictures of them in the Dungeons & Dragons art and Arcana book. Um, and the funny thing there, what you'll notice when you look yeah. at those pictures, the old D20s did not have the numbers 1 through 20 on them. They had the numbers 0 through 9 on it two times. Huh. And they were white dice. So what people would do is just color half of the dice with a different color. And that color was either below 10 or over 10. Huh. There's another way you can do it as well, where you get a d20 and you get a d6. And you roll a d6 and you roll a d20. So the d6 is what designates if the numbers are going to be 1 through 10 or you know 0 through 9, depending on the dice you're using, or 10 through 20 or 11 through 20. And if it's one, two, or three on the d6, you're using numbers one through 10. If it's four, or five, or six on the d6, you add 10. Yeah, I mean, just I guess it's a thing. People the same had to do that back die. in the day because right. t- t- that's what the dice that they had.
0: It's funny, you know, you, you do the same, similar kind of thing with 2d10 now, right? Yeah, you exactly. Have a, a convenience one that's your tens die, whatever. But it you kind of had to keep it somewhere in the middle because well, if you get an actual D100 and roll an actual
1: D100, your golf yeah, well, ball will never stop. You used to have to use the D20 to do the D100 rolls back in the day. Yeah. So, you know, it was definitely a unique thing, I think, at the time. And just looking at the trouble they had getting good manufacturers for those dice. Uh, but it's something that's really uh, goes back a long, long way in human history in terms of dice so I was looking. I was like, "What is the oldest the oldest dice that we have?" And it's kind of interesting when you look back. The very first usage of dice uh, were probably from the, these bones in the ankles of hoofed animals called the talus, and we have them too. Yeah, we have those too, right? And because of this, even though it's a bone, and technically the foot in people, uh, they got known as knuckle bones or just bones, and that's why dice are sometimes referred to as bones. Huh. And then, of course, later they made them out of all kinds of stuff from bronze to marble to amber, whatever they could make them out of. Uh, but most of them started with bones and they probably used more for divining, you know, rather than for actual games. So that's why dice are called bones.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that I had a, a, there's a novelty idea in my mind about tossing bone dice, but I've, at one point I had a die made of bone. It was really shitty.
1: Yeah, bone is actually a pretty crappy material for dice because it's not a consistent material all the way through. Right. Um, There's our strategies now where they inject resin, and you'll find a couple companies like Artisanal Dice will make bone dice that are actually pretty solid, Um, but it's due to like some resin injection technology that I don't fully understand. (laughs) But apparently it's good. So when we look at actually where did we have we found the oldest dice in human history They actually come from an archaeological site in Iran known as the Burnt City. They call it that because it burned down three times during the times it was a city. That's a good reason as any, I guess. Yeah, and when we look at these dice, they're actually about 5,000 years old. That means they predate Stonehenge by 1,000 years. What,
0: What kind of dice were they?
1: Unfortunately, they were D4s. Ah! the worst one. I know the worst one, the but worst the easiest one. the easiest to carve
0: and make. I know. I always just feel so bad because D4 is the worst and it's the it's the most
1: ubiquitous. But you'll be happy to know that they were paired with a backgammon like game.
0: So, I play backgammon and I think it's fascinating to hear that it goes way 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 back because I learned it from the the British style, which has opinions about the game. <laughs> of course. Of course. Anyway, it's it's I don't know if I would call it a dice game. I guess it is because you roll die to see how many pips you move, you know. But uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear that backgammon is so old.
1: It is. There's another one uh, in Egypt called Senate. It's probably one of the other oldest board games I've ever found, like 3100 BCE, so also pretty much 5,000 years old. And uh, that one was very, very similar to backgammon, except you played with two like flat sticks, like So, essentially, it's like flipping a coin, which is essentially a D2, um, and that would tell Mm -hmm. you how far you moved. Mm -hmm. And that's another really early version of seeing dice being used for a game. My other favorite one that I found, before we move on to talking about more modern dice, is the Royal Game of Ur, which is a board game from ancient Mesopotamia. And it was very popular across all of the Middle East for quite a while. And I actually found that there are some small Jewish communities who played this game all the way up until the 1950s. I think that's crazy. That's pretty cool, right? It was another backgammon precursor. All three of these games we've talked about so far were. Um, And once again, it was by rolling a set of D4s. You know,
0: what's interesting about backgammon, and I wonder if this is true in Ur, is that it really is about moving men across a board, you know. So it's like chess, an abstraction of military strategy, but really it's just moving pieces around. And how good are you at that? Which D D has that too, right? It very much you don't roll for movement, so that's fixed. But you roll for other parts of the of the strategy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Dice are usually like used for movement when you first see them or something similar. A lot of the time, across a board, Monopoly for instance. Monopoly is another one. Um, and if we're looking at old dice. One of the oldest ones that we found in terms of a D20 is from ancient Egypt. It's pretty well known in the gaming community because the picture of it is really cool. And you'll see it across a lot of websites. Um, It dates back as early as 200 BCE. Uh, It's carved from stone. And you can actually go see it in New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, Interesting fact about that die is that... It's actually Greek letters on the die, not Egyptian, because the Macedo- Greeks from Macedonia had ruled Egypt during that time period. I mean,
0: we know the Greeks had a fetish for
1: geometry and oh, math. We'll get on to we'll get to the Greeks and their, their geometry, but uh, this die is probably worth almost about twenty thousand dollars. The last time one of these die, a die like this, was sold at auction, it went for about eighteen k.
0: So you think about every time you roll that die, you've shaved off a thousand dollars.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? Don't roll that one. It's a very expensive roll of a die. Right? So dice goes back quite a way. 5,000 years. And then you'll even find, like, written records of dice in a lot of ancient Sanskrit texts and Buddhist texts. Um, it's very common there. So, for example, the, the Rig Veda has some in there. The uh, the Mahabharata has mention of dice and dice games. The Atharavarada has a whole hymn titled A Charm for Success in Gambling. Um, and all of these were anywhere from, like, 1500 BCE to 400 BCE, so a while back. Um, and those were the first written records of dice, so clearly they were used for way, way, way before that. Human obsession with dice, man.
0: I think it's interesting that people found enough fun slash captivation in rolling a random-sided something to do a resolution for a game that they couldn't adjudicate themselves or didn't want to, weren't able to, you know... Uh, way, way back since the, the dawn of civilization, right? The way precursors of all of text and civilization as we think of it today. And they were like, hey, you know what would be fun? Let's toss some random things on the ground and see how they look. And then they would do that and then they would use that to play games as opposed to, you know, chess, fixed strategy right where you have all the pieces on the board they're just like yeah let's just toss some random things out there man this is gonna be great oh yeah, yeah. Well, look look you rolled two of them face up <laughs>
1: people love gambling that's <laughs> a big part of it I, I was really surprised when i was looking back at these uh early written records of dice the vedic people throughout of all of india loved gambling they loved this shit um one of the uh in the rigveda which is one of the older uh, sanskrit texts. They have a hymn in there. Um, It's one of the few ones that's not directly religious, and it's called the Gamester's Lament or Gambler's Lament, though I prefer Gamesters because it's more relevant to what we're talking about. Um, And it's actually the monologue of a repentant gambler who (laughs) laments that they've brought ruin upon themselves because of their addiction to dice gambling.
0: That's interesting.
1: I went even further, and I found out that the dice themselves were actually carved from nuts into a D4. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it wasn't the Caltrop. It was the oblong, like crystalline shape. Uh, it's a little better, right? It is. It's it better is. than the the Caltrop's one, in my oh, opinion. I think so. At least it actually rolls. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly more satisfying <laughs> than plopping a dang Caltrop on the ground. So, yeah, dice are a big deal. Um, you know, and it, people use dice from that time up until we got to uh, probably the next big part in history is when we get to the Greeks and their obsession with geometry and dice.
0: If I was going to get all pseudoscience-y, there is a whole bit that I could make around the math behind which die you roll to achieve which effect you want in a game. And this would be right up Plato's alley.
1: Oh, Plato would love that. Plato was all about that. Like, he called the... So, for Plato, he was really obsessed with a lot of these shapes that we just think of as dice because to him, they were this, like, perfect geometry, right? And he actually ended up calling these the platonic solids. So, a platonic solid is a regular convex polyhedron uh it's constructed by having congruent which means it's identical in shape and size regular all the angles equal and all the sides equal polygonal faces right so essentially it's a lateral shape with the same numbers of faces meeting at each vertex
0: Basically, you can take the face of this and you can touch all the faces to another one and you do that enough times and you have your shape.
1: Yeah, pretty much, right? So you have you can unfold it or roll it up, essentially, right? right. With that shape. Right. Um, and so five solids, which we use, the D4, the D6, the D8, the D12, and the D20, Plato was like, these shapes are the shit. There's nothing else like these shapes. They're perfect. I'm calling them the platonic solids.
0: <laughs> I wonder what I would need to do to get skyler solids
1: it, there's actually a lot of solids out there apparently in the, the physics and math world so I didn't go too far into that but there's a lot I was like wow there's a lot of other solids named after people
0: here I was gonna go make a poop joke
1: <laughs> oh you could do that I mean <laughs> yeah I don't know what d that would be
0: uh let's not go down yeah, there, no, no, let's but... not go into that
1: so <laughs> but talking about what you were saying in terms of like ascribing like flavors or something of that nature to these shapes, Plato actually did that himself. Um, I mean,
0: like, what? All right, go ahead.
1: So he has a work where he writes about this called the Timaeus, which I'm probably mispronouncing, Um, and he actually connects each of the classical elements, fire, earth, air, and water, to one of these shapes, which is just great. I love how Plato's all over here he's all scientific and precise with the geometry, and then he's like, nah, this one feels like fire to me.
0: Plato was totally watching Last Airbender.
1: I seriously, <laughs> he'd be a fan of, of that, I think. Uh so I'm sure some of these will be kind of make more sense when you hear them. The D4 was fire because the, the heat of fire feels sharp and stabbing, just like those. Damn little caltrops. See, he knew they were caltrops See, back then. He knew, knew. It. he knew He knew. Like he, That one makes sense. I'm like, yes.
0: It is what it is. That's how it is. Damn it, d 4 He's like, damn
1: it. The Earth is a D6, right? D6 is Earth. Um, it's a highly non-spherical solid uh, that represents the Earth. Um, so I think also part of it was the cube is the only regular solid that tessellates Euclidean space. And therefore, was believed to cause the solidity of the earth.
0: I don't even know what that. means. I don't means. know what that means,
1: but apparently, that was Plato's reasoning for why you know it was so great. Um, it also didn't flow; you know, it, it rolled and rocked a little bit more. Uh, the D eight was air. Um, its minuscule components are super smooth, and so it has more faces. I don't really know where he got that one, but apparently, that one's air. Hey, I
0: mean, if you're making up. Mathematical mysticisms, you can do yeah, whatever just you want. go with it, whatever works, right?
1: The mm. <laughs> D- D20 was water um, because it flows out of one's hand. Like it's made of, you know, like water flows out of your hand, right? It, we're it stretching here,
0: Plato. We're stretching here.
1: Yeah, right. He's, he's, it's a little poetic ge- licensing there. Um, but my favorite of these was Aether, which was like the ideal combination of all the elements that con- were what heaven was made out of, was the D12.
0: Oh, the D twelve, the D twelve, the poor, misused, not often enough used, missing D. Turns from out it's, all of our
1: dice. it's the like most perfect one. That poor D twelve. So essentially, barbarians have got it right. Uh, I mean, the very the very barbarians that Plato talked shit on, and all of Greece <laughs> talked shit on, were the only ones who saw how great the D twelve really was. I guess. I guess Conan is what's what you know. I, I, I guess that's some poetic justice there. Yeah, A little irony. <laughs> And so that was a big deal in terms of solidifying kind of the the geometry of dice and these shapes. And you'll notice we didn't mention the D10 because it's technically not a platonic solid. And that's why you see it come in later. Sad D10. Poor D10. Very useful. Technically,
0: right, not a platonic solid. It has a weird shape that's not, you can't fold it.
1: Right. So yeah, the Greeks and they got all their, their dice philosophy and that built a good foundation for like math moving forward. And eventually people mathematically proved a lot of the things Plato was talking about. Probably not the the elements in aether part though. I wish if they had proved aether, my steampunk fantasy would be real. Oh, I'd be out there like like earthbending right now. Yeah, that's definitely my favorite uh, element of the bending from Last Airbender. Why? It's just the coolest one. The earthbending. Yeah, is the coolest I like the one? earthbending. Huh. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to talk about this at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: I'm I'm definitely in the airbending camp. Maybe well, fire.
1: I didn't think I'd like earthbending the most either. Anyway. The place where we first kind of see dice make their entry into a style of game that is reminiscent of Dungeons and Dragons is Kriegspiel, which we talked about previously. Kriegsspiel.
0: I-, I feel like the next time if I ever go to Germany, I'm going to seek this game out. I want to see if I can see it played.
1: I bet you can see it played here.
0: <gasps> uh, you probably
1: are right. We could probably go find a shop and like get people to play it with us. Will you play Kriegsspiel with me? You have to do the accent the whole time, though. The whole time. They are going to play Kriegspiel. Do mit with me. So Kriegspiel, they actually had five different D6s. And they there's more written on each face than just, you know, a number. Uh, it, but the interesting thing is different die were used for different things. So, and they were numbered. So die one... This will sound familiar, too. This is where this concept first came from, was used to determine ranged damage, as well as hand-to-hand combat results, and things like setting a village on fire. So, damage. <laughs> the first die was I used guess. for damage. Damage. All the right? damage. Anything from shooting somebody to punching so, but, them to burning The funny them. thing is, die two was used to determine ranged damage by skirmishers firing from cover. And hand-to-hand combat results when the odds were three to two.
0: Now this doesn't this this doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, now we're devolving. This is why people needed help to play Kriegspiel. Um, the third die was used to determine damage inflicted by artillery under good conditions. Only under good conditions. Only under good conditions. <laughs> this is a German game, Skylar. You will have the damage die. It is a better one. But only under good conditions, and only for your artillery. This is Aris. The best part is die number four is... Hand-in-hand combat again, but when the odds are three to one.
0: (laughs) Until then, you are very, very against the enemy, and you are three to one. You use this other die. I I think that you are making the game harder than it needs
1: to be. Halt your mouth! (laughs) Don't worry, because die five is artillery under bad conditions. Oh, my God. And hand-in-hand combat when the odds are 4 to 1 i mean if the odds are 4 to 1 i think you're kind of fucked
0: so i think really what we're seeing here is that they have a stacked ranking of the dice and the lower the one of the 1 through
1: 5 is the better it is for
0: the player using it essentially and you
1: want to be using that first dice if you can right and as the, as the
0: die goes as the die goes higher then it gets harder and harder and the odds are more stacked against you so in as opposed to like we'd see in DD today Where we have modifiers, we add to our characters where we, you know, pluses and minuses and so on. Here, they just change dice.
1: Yeah, they just had the dice, right? So the dice often, like switching dice was like getting that modifier, essentially. Mm. And they they did extra math. And I'm sure sometimes, you know, the tables they used or whatever, they might have modifiers added to those rolls. I'm not familiar with the rules 100% because they're insanely complicated. And I've never played Kriegspiel. 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 Anyways, that's kind of the history of dice. Then we kind of see dice in war games from that point up until the modern era. Maybe not the funny-sided ones we're so familiar with. But that's really where the the tradition of dice in a war game began.
0: Well, what do you think that the dice serve in those games, right? Like, you could just play a game, and maybe we can talk a little bit about the the difference in types of games, right? There's games that you have dice and games that you don't, like Go or Chess or Checkers, Uh The dice obviously bring in some element of randomness or pseudo-randomness, depending upon the quality of the die. But why? You know, not just gambling, but... Or is it, do you think, actually, for D&D, just gambling? Is it that the dice rolling for us in our game makes it... It scratches that gambling itch?
1: I mean, I think you can always argue that something, like, that's random can be connected to gambling in some way. Uh, If there's a risk-reward paradigm, definitely. But I think most of the time... What we're trying to do with the dice is that they're a random number generator, clearly, hopefully, <laughs> that represent the randomness or probability of the universe. Like, there's always going to be things in life that you don't know that may happen. And I think a lot of the time the dice are meant to represent that.
0: Yeah, I mean, is it random or is it just laziness? And, and here's why I ask this question. There's the, I want to resolve something that I don't want to think through all the details of how it's going to come out. Like, how, where do I strike this guy's armor, and how strong am I, and how much stamina do I have, and what's my footing like, and is my armor chafing, and is the weather fair, and did that girl kiss me, and blah, blah, blah. Versus the truly random, random things. And why I bring this up is, there's evidence in science of these things called cosmic bit flips cosmic rays, right? You know, some electromagnetic system like your phone or a computer gets hit, which is, it's an EM field. All of the memory is stored as electric state. gets hit from something truly random, like really out there in the cosmos. Some wave, let's call it a a neutrino or an electron or a proton or something goes, bam, and changes a a bit from zero to one. And the state changes, you know, and it's, it's as random as you could ask for right? We can't possibly predict when one of those things is going to come streaking through and gum up our electronics, But most of the time in dice, we're not using it for that, right? The dice actually don't reflect that kind of randomness. They don't really reflect the possibility for some truly random thing to happen. It's more a variance in our game. It's like a a range of these possible outcomes, this narrow range of successes and failures. Which one are you going to get? And we kind of randomize of that set.
1: Yeah, I think it's context-specific in that regard, right? It's not truly random Um, I don't think it would be very fun if they were truly random.
0: Right. I mean, and this is sort of to the point of, I don't want to sound tribal here, but maybe for a little bit, why D&D is a more popular game than, let's say, GURPS, which is more random, has more flexibility for all these kinds of crazy things that happen, because it has that, I don't want to quite call it guardrails, but... It's got some more structure to it. It's got some more intent behind where the randomness can be applied.
1: Definitely. I think randomness, we're, we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure, but randomness, you got to have some aspect of control in there somewhere. Otherwise, it's not very fun. You don't feel like you have any agency, right? I think the other thing that's important to distinguish is that randomness is different than fate. A lot of people like to talk about lady fate or lady luck and like the fate of the dice. But the thing is, fate is inherently not random. random by definition. It's predetermined. Right? Most of the times, most... I'm sure you'll see people with a different definition of fate, but most of the time, fate, by definition, is something that is predetermined.
0: Yeah, I mean, destiny, right? This was this was destined to happen. It's fate.
1: Exactly. It's, it and, must be. But a die is truly... Should ideally be truly random. But like you were saying, randomness right. is only fun if players feel like they have some control over it, right? Like, it's no fun if it's a game... like. If you're just rolling dice and moving around a board and there's no real choices you're making, you, it's not very fun because you' not you have no agency. Like essentially you, the, the randomness needs to be initially driven by choice or it needs there needs to be some way to react to affect the outcome of that randomness.
0: I think that this is a sliding scale. I think that the amount of randomness in a game is player to player. And I think that this is why you see different kinds of games. You know, I think from, let's say, a simple dice game like Cannonball, where you just explode your dice, and it's basically no agency except for tossing the die itself. Craps is like that, too. To D&D, where you can, through strategy, or even Pathfinder is more of this, you can, through strategy and careful calculation, manipulation, building your character, whatever it is, mitigate a bad role, or even maybe even make it not matter. Uh, based on strategy. And this is the classic debate, right? How much of a game is player capabilities, tactics, and strategy versus chance, like like poker, like Texas Hold'em, you know, where there's one part strategy and one part just luck?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to find a balance, especially in a role-playing game, because you're playing a role where you want to make meaningful choices that matter and that have consequences based on those choices, you gotta find a balance of that randomness and that agency, and usually the DM has most of the control in that regard. Like players have some some ability there to swing it either way as well, but a lot of the time that kind of lies with the DM. But like you were just saying, it lies even more so with the game, right, and how that game is designed.
0: Yeah. I, so I think when it comes to game design, maybe we should talk about the differences between games that have perfect information for the players and games that don't. But uh, before we do that, I think I might need a refresher. I'm feeling kind of parched.
1: You know, there's a tavern right here. We should stop in and get a drink. It looks a little German. Yeah. Ja, vol. Well, let's do it.
0: So welcome to Tavern Talk, where we review a beer, one that we're drinking, and also where we toast to you, our listeners, and give you a promo if you share yeah. our show.
1: It's our thank you for listening.
0: We're glad. We hope that while you play, you enjoy a libation of your choice as much as we enjoy our libations while we play. So let's talk about this one in particular. Uh, this is Augustiner Brau München Edelstoff. This is a classic German brew.
1: It's from the oldest brewery in Munich. It's one of the two variations that they export.
0: I've been to this one in particular. It's worth visiting for any tourists who want to go do an excellent tourist thing in Munich. They have very good beer of a variety of types, including this one, and also good schnitzel and other delicious Bavarian fare. But what's interesting, a bit of trivia, is that the beer that you get at that place will be like a better version of this beer, because... This one was shipped to the United States, where we're doing this show, and Germany has some pretty strict laws around what you can and can't put in your beer. So the trivia part is, the United States, by contrast, doesn't import any beer that doesn't have any preservatives, you know? So it has to have some preservatives in order for us to import it. And in Germany, that's one of the things that they don't allow in their domestic excellent beers. Right. So, you know, this is a very excellent beer, and I've actually... This is the first time I've had it not in Germany. How did you choose this one? What makes you choose this one today?
1: Well, when I was doing all this research for game history, I was like, how cool would it be if I found a beer that they might have drank when they played Kriegspiel? Oh, you bet they were. Right? Absolutely. So I was like, all right, let's find one of those. That's where beer and pretzels gaming started.
0: And if you go to Munich, like, they're drinking this all the time. Yeah,
1: and it's- thankfully... <laughs> In San Francisco were a little spoiled. so I found this at a liquor store a block from my house and this was the the only one I could find that was around that time. but then I learned later in my research that when Cresville was invented, that time of like I don't know 1811 up to about 1820 was they were moving the brewery. Oh so the monks had to like move the brewery and someone else like took ownership of it. and so I was like, either they were drinking a different brew, or this was like the most prized no, brew. No, no,
0: no, no. They just continue to make it while they move it. Of That's course. what I would assume. I
1: assume it's like well, rich people were playing Kriegspiel, so they probably were like, "Haha, they had some." I reserves. still have the good stuff.
0: I think that the liquor store near your place is better than mine because mine does not have anything like this.
1: I, I it was I took a little searching, but can't go wrong with this so beer. So,
0: what do you what do you think about this beer? Is it, you've had this before? I guess
1: I've had this once before. It's one of the two variations from this brewer you can get in the U.S. This beer is just great. I got, no, you, I got nothing bad to say about this. What
0: would you compare this beer to if it was, you were comparing it to a domestic beer? What style? What style would you say this beer is? It's a lager. Just a simple lager? It's a lager. I would put it somewhere between like a lager and a pilsner.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's light. Yeah, it's a light lager. It's not super heavy. I don't mean
0: like a light beer. I mean it's, it's easy and refreshing.
1: It's, it's from the time when lagers really first started showing up. Uh, a lot of the, most of the beers before that time were mostly ales, and then you started to see lagers, and then eventually you see, you know, a hundred years later, like the Kolsch, which is a combination of the two, and mm-hmm. hybrids. But I wanted to find a classic German lager that they might have played, or drank, excuse me, while they played Kriegspiel.
0: Uh, I think that what I love about many of the German beers is they're really malty taste. They, they have a very rich kind of malty taste to them, and they're very, very drinkable. You know, one of the things I love about beers like this one, this one included, is I don't really need variation. Like, I'm going to drink this. I'm going to drink another one. You can drink it forever. Drink it tomorrow. Drink it the day after. It's great.
1: It's always good.
0: Which is very different than the beers we have. And we have quite a lot here on the West Coast that we can choose from. And we're like, well, I'll try one of those. And then I'm going to try a different one tomorrow. And I'm going to go buy something that I haven't tried. And you're always trying a new and different beer. These are, are what I hold up to be like the gold standard of I'm going to have a really good German beer. And it's still as good as I remember it.
1: I... Really can't drink this and not enjoy it. It's hard to do that. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, aside from beer, we have uh, another cool thing to talk about here.
0: So we're doing a promo. If you share our show, then we are going to enter you in a raffle. The raffle is to win not just the core rule books, but when we got this, it was better than we actually thought it was going to be. We've been saying you're going to get the core rule books, and you are. You definitely are. But wait, there's more. The catch is, the rule books are a special limited boxed edition that has foil covers and a bonus DM screen, and a nice little cozy for all four.
1: I'm a little jealous I don't have the
0: foil covers. I bought all the books. I don't have this set, and this is better than my set? I am definitely jealous of whoever's going to get this.
1: Yeah, so if you're like, oh, I already have those books... But do you have them with the foil cover? No, you definitely don't. Anyone who's played Magic knows the foil cards.
0: Listen, I'll say this. They're better. In third edition, they they came out with a set of books, the DMD, DMG, PHB, and Monster Manual. And they were the leather-bound ones. This was a full year after Ooh. the others came oh, out. Man. They were in black leather. They had a little nice bookmark in them. And I'll tell you, I already had all three of them. I had a few copies because people would leave my house. I didn't care. I gave all those away, and I bought these because they were beautiful. These are this version of that. They didn't have foil back then on the books. These are great, you know? And, and I think that anybody who sees these on your shelf is going to be like, oh, damn, those are nice. Where did you get that?
1: It's everything you need to get started. Except dice. Except dice. So <laughs> you if you want to be dice. entered in the raffle, share the show. Uh, you could share by tagging us on Twitter, at Far Realms Radio, or Instagram, at Far Realms Radio. You could just send us proof of you sharing the show via email or text, or you could be like really weird and creepy and record a video of you telling the show to about someone about it and send that to us. I that don't know. That would be interesting.
0: I'm going to require you to put it on YouTube, I think, if you do that. <laughs> or I might put it on YouTube, and then we'll all yeah. rejoice in your youtube Somehow,
1: share the show. Tell someone about the show. Send us proof. You can reach us at far realms radio at gmail.com. And we'll enter you in the raffle, uh, which we are going to pull after the first eight weeks of episodes. All so right. So episode nine, I think, is where we will be introducing the or announcing the winners. We will. We definitely will.
0: Cool. I think that I'm, I'm pretty thoroughly refreshed. I have this lovely Bru auf Deutschland. Aus Deutschland.
1: I think we should uh, get back to the show.
0: Let's get back to the show.
1: Back to the show.
0: So let's talk about the difference between perfect information games and imperfect information games. And we can call like chess or Go or Tic-Tac-Toe perfect information games. And uh, anything else that has randomness like dice rolling or card shuffling is an imperfect information game.
1: Yeah, you can get really kind of into the weeds on this and you'll actually find some arguments in either direction. Uh, But generally, like when we're looking at we're looking right now at sequential games, which means players take turns. You're not doing everything simultaneously, which totally changes this. Yeah. Um, so in a sequential game, it has perfect information. If each player when making any decision is informed of all the events that have previously occurred, um, including whatever the initialization event of the game may have been. So that, for example, would be the starting hand of each player in a card game or knowing the position of pieces on a board. Generally, chess is considered an example of this of perfect information as each player can see all of the pieces on the board at all times. Um, Another example of this would be tic-tac-toe, checkers, like you said, go. Um, Some people, however, will disagree and argue that chess is not a perfect information game because you don't know what that player is thinking or predicting to do. And that's a different discussion for a different time. Well, but
0: it's interesting you bring that up because backgammon... Since we talked about it earlier, it kind of inverts that as a as a reflection of that because it is a dice game. So okay, quote unquote, not perfect knowledge game. But the by the same token, there are a finite number of strategies that each player can do, and so and you know based upon where the pieces are on the board. Yeah. And the limited number of rolls you can get in the dice, what the next strategy is, you just don't exactly or should be. You just don't know which one's going to come up and next.
1: The thing with that actually is when we, we're talking about st- known strategies like that, that actually gets into what's called complete information versus incomplete information, which is a whole nother thing. It's actually different than perfect versus imperfect information. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're looking at a game like just to clarify, like poker or bridge, where you don't know the other players' cards, that's imperfect information. And backgammon, like you just said, is funny because it's a it's a sequential game like we're talking about, which has chance events. But the probabilities are known to all the players. Right. So it doesn't count as secret information. So essentially, like these it's considered a game of perfect information. So backgammon or even Monopoly might be considered games that are technically still perfect information games. Um, You could also argue maybe that they'd be complete information games, but that's a totally different thing. Um, like we said before, games with simultaneous moves usually are uh, not considered games of perfect information because each player essentially has a move that the opponent doesn't know that's considered secret. Um, but without getting too far into this, it should be pretty clear that D&D contains a lot of secret information.
0: I mean, it's core to the game, right? The yeah. dungeon master knows things the players don't.
1: Exactly, and therefore it's not a perfect information game. So all of that just to establish the fact that You know, we're looking at a game that is not considered a perfect information game. It's different than chess in that regard, in that all the players don't have all the information.
0: I mean, there are a lot of other ways. Of course, it's different from chess, but structurally, too, (laughs) I would say that one key thing to focus on is, yes, there's imperfect information, and also it's not adversarial, whereas chess is. It's
1: a great point. Or
0: checkers, or backgammon, or go, you know, any of these other
1: quote-unquote, well... Well, if you have really bad players, it can be. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but one of the things that i know that i noticed as a kid that you probably also noticed is that games with perfect information have less surprises and less tension now if they're more complicated like chess they will still have surprises and tension just because the mathematical probabilities are so vast
0: well or but if, if there's a surprise you know clearly but, that one player is is probably better than the other
1: exactly and now if we're considering both players are perfect players and know every strategy of their brains a supercomputer then it's a perfect information game
0: right and then it's just a matter of who can act fast enough within the time limits of chess hence why they added
1: time limits exactly to chess. why there's time limits exactly for that reason uh but when we look at something like tic-tac-toe it's boring because the outcome's always clear as long as each player kind of knows how to win like mm-hmm. it's the same candyland it's you're just it you're not making any decisions you're rolling dice and drawing cards right. it's Those type of things, you know, they have less surprises and less tension. And that can be a bad thing. Like, I personally never really enjoyed games like Monopoly or Tic-Tac-Toe because there's just too much RNG. I don't feel like my choices matter.
0: Monopoly is the worst, not just because there's RNG, but because the game is set up to punish you.
1: There's that, too.
0: Welcome to capitalism, my friends.
1: (laughs) Welcome to capitalism. Uh, But... The important thing, like in tension, is something that we talk about a lot in Dungeons and Dragons. It's kind of the the emotional response of not knowing what is going to happen. Is there another way you would define tension?
0: I think I mean
1: fear. Tension is fear. Is it always fear though? I I think so. I think Could it it be excitement?
0: I think that that is fear. Excitement is fear. Is it
1: inherently fear because there's a risk reward ratio?
0: I think that the it's the same thing, fear and, of the and, and why I say it's the same thing is because even excitement is fear that you might or might not get what you want, and That's a good point. you know, like you're excited because you might, and you you're maybe tense because you don't want to let yourself you be really excited because you don't want to jinx it, or you, you might, yeah, you might not, you might be a letdown, you know, you're afraid of the letdown, you know, so I think really tension is about fear, and if we're gonna get deep here for a moment you know it's really in that case about the unknown and this is what happens in games like um, it's tense i don't know i might win if i roll something something sometimes we roll it and it works and we get it and we we win and sometimes we don't and human beings being pattern matching machines uh, are good at assigning meaning to random numbers but In D&D, it's not straight up random because there is agency behind it. There's a DM and there are other players, all of whom have influence on whatever the random thing is that you're going to roll, right? But all of whom also have their own secret agendas that you're riffing off of or working against or working with.
1: There's a lot of information to play with.
0: Right. There's a lot of unknowns, you know? So I don't know. I think that the tension comes out of, to answer your question from that perspective, the fear, the fear of that, that. Desire to get what we want and those other forces that might prevent us from doing it because it might be a not enough resource, b bad dice, c our own bad
1: dice, always a possibility. Bad
0: dice, it's just bad dice, you know. Ha, blame the bad dice. <laughs> Nobody's ever lost money off a of bad dice,
1: said nobody ever. Totally not a thing, yeah. And we've both played games without tension in Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, my God!
0: I mean, it's boring, right? Like it's boring. You, if you go and watch a play or a movie, you want tension. You need tension. and part of that is dramatic tension, but there's there's a reason that Chekhov's gun is a theatric construct, right? <laughs> Chekhov's gun, for those who don't know, is if you have a play and there's a gun on the mantelpiece, it goes like this. If there's a gun on the mantelpiece at the opening of the play in Act one, the gun must be used by the end of act three. It's a kind of foreshadowing. but also it provides a subconscious tension for the audience. We all see the gun. We all see it there. We wonder, I wonder if that's ever been used. And then, you know, of course, because it's a prop, because we took the time to put it there on the set, that means that it has to be used for something. And the drama and the fun comes in where and when and how, but the fear of it still is there, that tension of we don't know, you know. And that's, that's I think, the the dice in a very clear way in a game, including D&D, are that Chekhov's gun. You know at some point, for instance, that you are going to roll a one.
1: And it will determine your outcome.
0: You know that you're going to botch. And we we like to pretend that we don't also know that we're going to roll a d20 because, you know, nobody wants to play with that guy who's like, I'm going to roll 20s all night tonight. I'm so cool. I'm better than you. (laughs) Because, yeah, good for you. I'm glad that you're awesome. And also... I'm rolling a bunch of ones over here Uh,
1: but yeah generally when there's no tension and things are like boring or overly predictable that's when players complain of being railroaded yeah right That's, that's being railroaded is a good example of there not being a lot of tension because you don't feel like you have agency right because things are overly predictable uh, it kind of diminishes your sense of aging. Like your choices don't feel like they matter or you feel like you don't really have control over the outcome. The DM's just railroading it to whatever he wants. But on the flip side, people also hate too much randomness, right? right. Or you too
0: much sandbox. Right,
1: or too much, sa- like just everything being random can be really frustrating. Games where it's mostly RNG and your choices don't matter, are, at least for me personally, I don't find that fun at all.
0: So I think it's a, a mixture of twiddly knobs that players want. With randomness as it pertains to a game, right? And and this is why in today's video game world, roguelikes and roguelites are so popular. For those who don't know, a rogue game is based off of that formula of the old game rogues video game. Was it text-based? Uh, I, well, if you call drawing a map out of ASCII characters text-based. <laughs> so hmm. not strictly speaking, it had graphics, but it used text characters to represent them, like Dwarf Fortress gotcha. does nowadays. And you would go through a series of menus and you'd pick a race. You can download this game for free on almost every platform there is, including your phone. Uh, And it inspired like NetHack and a whole bunch of others. But you pick a race or you could randomize it. You pick a class or you could randomize it. Stats or you could randomize them. And then you go into the dungeon. There's like a town where you started maybe and you started or maybe you just started the dungeon. And you explore it and live for as long as you can. And you, it has a random number generator. It's very much like DD. It came about after d you know. But, but this this level of randomness is, is attractive in a lot of cases, right? You want to like, I'm going to see what character I have. Let's run it through here and then it get, however long it gets. And then you die and you start over. But that's an example of a game, for instance, that has – A high level of randomness. And the dungeon is generated randomly every single time. And the monsters are different in different places. And the treasure is different. And no two games are ever identical. Versus something that's more scripted, not random. For instance, like if you go through... Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy or
1: Half-Life. The story's pretty much the same.
0: The story's the same. The order of events is the same. It's merely the way in which you solve the conflict.
1: It's funny because in games you've seen a large push away from games that... Require more railroading, and there's a lot more focus on player choice and the ramifications of those choices. A board it, game is very
0: railroady, right? Any board game is very railroady because it's the board game. It's Monopoly has
1: railroads in it, literally, literally, literally in the game.
0: Pandemic is very railroady; it gives you very limited set of things you can do. For instance, or Catan, you know. I think
1: Pandemic does a pretty good job, though, all around. It's a great you some game. It's
0: totally, uh, I, I don't think that railroading is always a bad thing. For instance, like Half Life, the yeah. Half Life video games are straight up railroad. The entire game, it's a first person. You go from one area to the next area, but you enjoy it nonetheless.
1: There's nothing wrong with good linear gameplay. Yeah,
0: it's just good storytelling in in that case. It's not always that case. And railroading is very much about, um, I guess in D&D, doing the kind of thing that your players maybe don't want. They want more agency. They want more randomness as opposed to or at least they want more unpredictability as opposed to knowing what's coming.
1: They don't want to feel like they're just running a set script and their choices don't matter.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of how the real world is too, right? To to an extent is it's it's not just straight up random. We have some agency we like to think, but there's a lot that we don't understand.
1: Yeah, and understanding is an important part of that because when we're looking at how how does like one specifically a GM balance tension? In a game, it's really about controlling the flow of information to the players.
0: Yeah, I think the flow of information to the players and also their the the results of their expectations, right? So maybe this is the same thing, but I think that like the flow of information governs how they make decisions and then the results of their decisions, they have expectations and hopes out of what what they roll, what they attempt to do. Yeah. And being able to adjudicate that as the DM in some way that they will buy... Is the core of it, right? That's this is that
1: information that's, asymmetry. That's the verisimilitude right there. Uh, players essentially need information to make good choices, right? They they need to be able to, like you said, like not only evaluate a situ- situation and come up with like a plan of action that they want to take, but to kind of like determine what what might those consequences be of that action, what might these outcomes be, and if that world is kind of internally consistent, they can make estimations or guesses as to like what may occur. Um, And so they need enough information to make good choices, but not so much information that they feel like they're not making a choice. I think
0: this is a deeply human quality. And why I say it like that is when I took motorcycle course, they taught us one particular acronym. It's called C. It stood for search, evaluate, and execute. And it's always based upon managing what I'm going to do based on the information I have. And this is the same thing I think that we do in life, generally, you know. We don't ever know the whole picture, right? This net Life is not a perfect information game, period. But
1: that's very true.
0: What we do in this game, in this particular game, gives us maybe a little bit more control than we do have in our real lives, in our normal lives, in our day-to-day. We have magic powers. We have heroic abilities. We have superhuman strength, intelligence, and charisma, all that stuff.
1: Yeah, I think it's just like real life in that people are excited by not knowing what is going to happen, but conversely, they also derive satisfaction from feeling like they're in control. Which is like a funny catch 22 It's it's that's why it's hard to find a good balance here because if you go too far in either direction, you either ruin the agency or you make things boring. Like you no one wants the movie spoiled before they go and watch yeah, it, it's right? It's a surprise. Because we it's like it's, the surprise. The surprise is what creates the tension. You don't know what's going to happen. So here's a question that I
0: have. This is just a fun thing that maybe one day I'll get to answer. I've been told that there's no way in Japanese to express pleasant surprise, or even surprise that isn't unpleasant. That Hmm. the only way that they can talk, and that the language, the way the language works, is the only way to describe a surprise has some connotation of displeasure around it. So that's interesting. And a large part of this game...
1: Is around surprise, well, pleasurable, and otherwise. Generally, people don't like being surprised because it doesn't make them feel like they're in control.
0: Unless it's beneficial, in which yeah. case you won the lottery. Congratulations! So you know,
1: if you speak Japanese, let us know in the comments if that is true.
0: Yeah, I mean, or or if you're a Japanese player, whatever your experience is of it, I'm curious. But I, I, my hope is one day I'd like to I'd like to see what D and D looks like culturally differently. Not just maybe in Japan, but that's that's an obvious example, I guess, since we're talking about agency, player agency, and risk, and how, what we know, what we don't know. Uh, anyway, I think it would be interesting to see the way in which different cultures perhaps treat this unknown.
1: Yeah, the hidden information, I'm sure, yeah, it's culturally treated different in different places. Um, but when we're looking at d and uh, like secret information, kind of the key is that even when the player has no control over discovering secret information, it always feels like it could still be discovered. Like you could have no chance of making that roll. It could be a DC thirty, but you roll, and the fact that you roll, you feel like, oh, I could have had it. Maybe if I had just rolled better. Oh, if I had
0: rolled a nineteen, I would have right? had it. But I rolled a seventeen. And, but here's Damn the it. thing,
1: and people always forget this: a natural twenty on a skill check is not an automatic success. So let's establish that right now. Unless one the of DM my, wants
0: it to be. Unless the DM wants in it which to case, be. He should but in which say case,
1: so. you're kind of ignoring how skill system works in the game. So. Have fun with that. But it used to be,
0: though, in in prior editions, it was.
1: It was. I mean, it's gone back and forth, but I I think it's a bad
0: idea to do it that way,
1: period. Yeah, because then your players will try the impossible all the time and expect it to work. You have a 5% chance
0: of doing something really crazy, which, you know, I've played in games like that and there is a fun that can be had there, but I think there are better systems for that than
1: this. I agree. Uh, I think the tricky part of this is, you know, we know that. People feel, too much randomness just feels like bullshit, like you're getting screwed over, but not enough randomness makes it feel like everything is scripted. You have no agency. And this can be, for a player, they're going to have a better perspective on this balance because they're playing in the game. The challenge for the DM is that you really don't have hidden information. You know everything. So it's a different perspective for the DM versus the player. So a lot of the time is GMs tend to kind of overvalue randomness and they tend to undervalue the power of like hidden information because as a GM, when you're looking at setting up your game and you look at something, you may see it as a binary choice of like, oh, they're going to succeed on this or not, or they're going to be railroaded here or they're not. But the thing to remember is a player doesn't know that that's the case. To them, it's an infinite possibility in terms of like attempting to pick that lock or spot that hidden trap in the room. They, have, they don't know the numbers.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a certain very real sense, the game that the DM is playing is not the same game that the players are playing. It's a very different style. And I think that the DM definitely has control over everything. There's no mystery that the DM doesn't know because the DM, of course, or GM, has, is empowered to, to decide. They're the ones who know. If anybody's going to know, they're going to know. But the thing is, a lot of DMs are like, yeah, I'm going to roll to see. Does the rogue sneak up behind you successfully? And I think that maybe they just get enjoyment out of rolling the dice for that because really the player doesn't care. You know, if you roll in front of them, they might find it novel if they like the rolling of dice in an abstract sense, you know, like, wow, dice are rolling. That's fun. Cool." Cool. But, and to each their own. But I think that the other part of it is there's a component of this that many DMs do, especially new ones, that they put off the agency of deciding for themselves onto the dice. And they they let the dice decide for them in part well-meaning because they don't want to betray the biases that they have as a DM. They know about themselves that... Well, if I was just going to have a do list, it would be like that. And this, you know, the rogue would sneak just here. And then this particular thing would happen my players have been playing with me for a year. So they know me. So they're going to see it coming. And they got in their own head just now, you know, they just so they randomize it. So they randomize it. And then they roll with whatever the role was, pun intended. And I think that what I would say to that is, you know, like, like we talked about earlier, the role is a tool. Sort of like if you have a a struggle between two choices do I buy the car? Do I not? Do I go ask the girl out? Do I not? Do whatever it is, you know, a, a common technique to deal with that kind of analysis paralysis is flip a coin, make heads one, tails the other, and see what it comes up as. And then check in with yourself and say, do I feel sad that it was tails and I wanted it to be heads? Well, there's your answer, you know? And so that applies for DMing too, right? It's the same kind of thing. Think about, all right, in your game prep, What's interesting to me? What would happen? Well, maybe I'll just roll and see. I'll roll on the table of random whatevers, and then I've rolled like three times. You know what? I'm just gonna pick the one that I like the best off of the table. That's and what that's I do every time, be, you know. And we're I'm gonna like, do like that.
1: That's a cool random table. I'm gonna pick this one, and I think, like you said, like new DMs really do tend to overvalue randomness because, like you said, they they don't want to. They're often afraid of railroading their players. And they also are presented a a book full of random tables. There's random tables all over it. So you're like, well, I clearly should be rolling on these random tables all the time. And like you said, people love rolling dice. It's fun. Right. That's like everyone loves rolling dice. That's one of the reasons we're sitting here playing this game. It's very
0: satisfying, visceral. I'm going to toss the
1: die. (coughs) And I think what happens a lot of the time with new DMs and also very experienced DMs is they feel like, oh, well, if I let the players roll the dice, I'm giving them control. I'm giving them agency but the irony there is that you're doing the exact opposite. You're like, ah, no, it's going to be this complete random die roll and your choice doesn't really matter. For what it's worth,
0: I think there's actually, this is one of the beautiful paradoxes of the game. And I encourage DMs to empower, quote unquote, players to roll for everything they possibly can. Because if the player wants to roll and enjoys rolling, let them. Even though it's more random and they're less likely to succeed, I think that what one of the things that's nice about it is they feel like they have more agency when they get to roll the dice even though the randomization of it you know they yeah. don't know that you could just give it to them as the dm that's true. you could just that, be like i'm just going to give them the hidden you. information right exactly so you know you have it as the dm you have a choice you can either not tell them whatever the answer is the knowledge check or the skill check they're trying to make you could make them roll for it or you could give them the answer straight out so yeah. Why I like the middle one, the the making them roll for it, is it makes them feel like they got access to something secret, that maybe they weren't some forbidden thing. That could thing have been missed. That they could have missed, and they're, they're going to roll to see if they get it. And I don't tell them, interestingly, here's the thing, like the rolling of it, they're going to, I'm just going to, give me a knowledge check, give me an Arcana check, tell me what you're going to get. I didn't tell you the DC. It might be DC 5, you know, it might be super low stakes. So the only time you're going to not get this information is if it's a botch and we get something entertaining out of it instead. But the the illusion of the roll, yeah. you know, and you, like maybe I intent. my intent is to give it to them one way or the other, what they roll. It's an easy piece of information. It should be automatic. But one of the things I had hit in the past with one of my players when I was doing this, I had one player who was asking not to have dice rolls. He very much wanted to be more like, Something we see out of gumshoe system, or just something like. like proficiency. My should know this. I'm right. proficient. In I'm this. proficient in this. I'm proficient in religion and proficient in history. I should be able to know this. My character should know this. But another player at my table also really liked the. In his mind, the verisimilitude of rolling. You just never know what's going to happen. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't know. Maybe, you know, like we should roll for See, stuff.
1: For me, that too much rolling breaks the verisimilitude because if I fail a knowledge check on something that my character should damn well know, that doesn't make any sense.
0: So here's the thing. This, this actually, this is a, these are both acceptable answers and they're both acceptable approaches to the game. And it's the DM's responsibility to be able to adjudicate it. And it's a scary thing to adjudicate, but there's an easy, easy, easy way to do it. And we just talked about it, which is let the players roll, let the players roll for everything. And this is why DCs are not broadcast to the players usually because the DM controls them. So I can say, all right, player who doesn't want to have to roll and player who does want to have to roll. Hey, player doesn't want to have to roll. Just do me a favor. Give me a roll. Just roll. Yeah. I know you're proficient in both those things and you have a big bonus. It's true. Give me a roll anyway. And then he rolls and he rolls like a two and plus whatever the modifier and you give him this the the information that he wanted and then he goes oh okay and he sees that two things one his proficiencies did pay out because even at a shitty role he was able to com- compensate and two the dm has his back i'm the dm i'm here to give you what you want and also i got to keep him at the table the other guy who wants the role too yeah.
1: see for me i actually completely disagree with that i don't <laughs> which is great that's why we'll have a good discussion. I do not I think people roll dice too much. I think most modern DMs are addicted to having people roll dice. I think it bogs the game down, it slows it down with too much dice rolling. Uh, like it, 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 it slows the game down, it disjoints and drags out your exposition. Maybe it's because I as a DM are not super great at exposition that I dislike it. Hmm. But more rolls it just slows the game down.
0: I do think that rolling more dice does slow the game it down, really especially does. in combat. And it's and like, it's just, oh, okay, everyone
1: mm. rolled perception, and this one person got, a, oh, look, out of five rolls, one was high enough that this person noticed it. Eh, I feel like it, in a lot of situations, it doesn't really work super well in that, like, if you're rolling, like, stealth situation and ambushes are pretty obvious because you're rolling. Um, and this is a place where... I think passive skill usage is really helpful. I, there's this whole thing of where people are like, oh my god, we didn't roll a dice, it's terrible, like, oh no. I think the passive skill usage that they brought in in 4E is where we first saw that, like passive perception, mm-hmm. um, is a great thing. And, you know, we saw it in three five and before with, like, taking 10 and taking 20, but I think... One of the best things about using passive skills in addition to active skills, right? You really have to determine, is this an active thing I'm doing with this skill? Like, if it's religion, like, knowledge would be a passive thing. You know it or you don't. You can't think harder to remember it. Whereas performing a religious ritual properly, that's active religion, right? Well,
0: yeah, but, I mean, so, as as a game mechanic... I think passive skills are good and active skills are good too. And the same is true, you could say, of attack bonuses or ability checks or any kind of whatever you want. From a die perspective, you're taking the die out of the game. So, you know, you want to be intentional when you do that. You say, all right, we're not going to roll for this because you don't need to. That sends a message to the players very clearly. Having been on the receiving end of that a number of times, and maybe this is just me, but how that lands with me is, oh, I should have known this. You know, if the the DM just gives it to me and they're like, yeah, who's trained in Arcana? Okay, so this is automatic information for you. And in D&D, mm-hmm. that feels like either A, oh, I'm glad that I got something that I was supposed to know. So glad I'm not dumb today. Or B, that's something outside of my class capability and for some other clear role. And, and I want to just contrast this very briefly against... We mentioned a little earlier with gumshoe system where if you have skills or you have a quote-unquote class and gumshoe doesn't really have that construct, you automatically get the information. There's no rolling for anything. If, you, if you're if you trained in that skill or that whatever ability you have, you get it. And then it's up to the players to put yeah. together what it means once you have all that.
1: I personally don't think there's anything wrong with that because it's that's the result, the payoff of a choice you made at character creation. Right. And I think a big part of it comes down to how you frame it because I know in certain – like. When we've played our pirate game, there's times where I'm like, because of your history as a smuggler in the moon moonshades, your character recognizes this. Right. And when you put it that way, it's like, oh, cool. That choice that I made at character creation is paying off. And I, do you feel different when it's framed in a different way like that? I mean, I abso- as a
0: result of a choice you made, I absolutely do. I think that, and this is part of knowing your players at the core of it, but. This is why I think fate is attractive sometimes as well, because if you look at that exact example, in, in, in our game, in D&D and 5e, we have backgrounds and we have ideals and bonds and flaws, and these have very little game mechanic influence unless we decide that they do, such as I am a criminal, my character is a criminal, and so I know these things, and I have a bonus on my insight check to understand if this guy is trying to sh- to shift me you know, in this deal. Um, versus another system like Fate, where your character is primarily comprised of your background and your history and these abstract things. It's not, it's not like a, a representation of physical reality and strength, dexterity, and so on like in D&D quite so clearly. It's, it's more flavor-driven. And that lets us choose these things and say, uh, no, I, I, I want to have knowledge about these things, the, my starfighter, as well as my laser sword, as well as my force powers or whatever else I have in that. Whereas in d and I might have like a fixed set of resources of force points mm-hmm. if we're hacking D&D to be Star Wars-y that I would spend to do force powers, you know, um, So I think that it really just depends upon the player sentiment, right? Like, if you give them automatic access to, hey, you know what? You can break down any wooden door that's not reinforced because you have a strength of 20, for instance, in Mm D&D. Great. You get rewarded. You get rewarded for building a character that That could hit 20 strength. That's strong. That's totally useful. But I think that part of that's maybe it's missing one part, which is, as a DM, also, the responsibility is to look at, well, fine, okay, if he hits automatically, can break through wooden doors, where is the point at which he gets to roll the die for his strength
1: well, to you test just, it? You just re- put a reinforced door yeah, in the right. dungeon. So,
0: this one's—exactly, exactly. exactly. Yeah. But, the, but, but, but I, I use that example as a simplistic one of, like, it's never just all one or the other, right? You have to have some
1: level of— Well, yeah, and I think that comes back to active versus passive. Right? And and what you
0: choose as I as, a, as break, a player when breaking you build down a your door character is you know? a pretty
1: active thing. I would have someone roll for that yeah, even if they had a high strength. Whereas if we're looking at a passive skill, it's kind of a different thing. Like I know for me personally, like talking about player preference, like I hate random knowledge checks that roll low because it's like my character should know this. I'm proficient in this knowledge. It takes that choice I made at character creation where I'm like my character knows religion. And that low roll all of a sudden it disregards that choice and it makes it I have no sense of control. I was like, what was the point of choosing religion if it, he doesn't know shit? Because I got this one l- low roll on something that this character should know.
0: Yeah. So do you think that it's different with skills in D&D than it is with, let's say, like uh, abilities or attack rolls in in, in I do. I Dice? I think the
1: skill system is unique in, because the skill system is often what we use to adjudicate action. And a lot of players, instead of saying, I do this, and the DM telling them which skill to roll for, they start with the skill. And I think sometimes that's a slippery slope. Um, but I think if you use passive and active together, you're going to get the best of both worlds, right? There's nothing wrong with like knowing your character's passive perceptions when they come into the room, so you kind of know what they notice. And if they want to do active perception of searching the room, cool, have them roll for it. Yeah, so I think... This th- is
0: one of the things that, that Gumshoe actually is serves as another good model for. I, I agree. I think that this is something D and D doesn't do very well, in my opinion. Is is this edition skills are kind of kind of lacking, and, and we're talking about skills is like yeah. a, a common area for dice. You know, I, I don't have any complaints about combat. D and has always done combat very well, and and risky situations, chases, these kinds of things, pretty reasonably. But I think that the thing that that gumshoe has that I like and it has both it's it, all of your knowledge skills and there are many 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 knowledge skills in gumshoe there's like it's a
1: lot I really like that part about gumshoe
0: yeah me too it and you can very specialize in customizing all the different ones you want and it gives you the knowledge for many of those off of the bat but then there are some general skills and it includes like sh- shooting driving fighting some other stuff and those you have to roll for every time you use them. Those are your, I guess, what you call your active ones. Yeah. You know, Even if you're using forensics mm-hmm. actively to deconstruct a bullet in the crime scene for your gumshoe system, you know, it's it's different. It lives in a different category than, let's say, fisticuffs, like yeah. you're fighting with somebody.
1: Yeah, I think gumshoe really goes totally in the opposite direction, very hard, and it goes to the other side of the spectrum of like, hey, let's not roll the dice as much. And I personally want to roll a little bit more die than dice than you do in Gumshoe, but it's such a great example of like if you move, you move the game to that other side of the spectrum. Um, But I think if you use passive with active, you're going to get the best, right? Because you the passive generally sets up your exposition as a DM, or it sets up um, action to the players by offering them information in the form of like warnings or clues or hooks, right? That passive bit hopefully is what gets them to take action to explore it more fully. Mm. Like they may, as they walk into the room, they may notice something weird about like this carpet. And then they're like, I want to actively search that carpet because I kind of noticed something was up with it.
0: One of the weird things for me about passive skills is that they tend to be lower than I want them to be. You know, they're always hovering around like maybe the highest one is a 16. You know, you're yeah, acting your passive. I part of that is, is it's, that it's, it's these like a 16, you can, whatever it, you know, which I guess makes sense for like passive, but that means you have like a, a, an 18 stat in whatever that is. Let's say wisdom for yeah, perception. you're at level two or three. Plus you're proficient, you know. So that's, and most of the players are like, all right, well, maybe I have some wisdom and maybe I have perception as a class skill. So I have like a plus four. So you have like a, a 14 for your perception, which is not great. Even in 5e with lower DCs, it's not that great.
1: Yeah, but as a DM, you have the power to set up what that means to that player in that situation. And I think as a DM, it makes planning your sessions and the information management a lot easier because you can be like, OK, if they come into this room, so-and-so will probably notice this because their passive perception is high and I know what the DC is and I know what their passive perception is. And I think as you you know, you can plan that as like, OK, if so-and-so notices this, hopefully that'll prompt them to take one of these actions with these other things I have in the room that they can interact with.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about how the game has changed. Because,
1: like, I know as a DM you've had the time where you expect that guy to make the knowledge check and he botches it, and then you're like, oh... Well, I guess they're not going to get that really important information out of this book they needed.
0: Well, right. That's why That's why I, I if hate it's a, checks. If it's a knowledge check of some kind like that and I need them to know it, I either just give it to them automatically because they're proficient or they read it, you know, and I accelerate that, which can feel kind of like cheating to some players. I mean, kind or, of, but
1: if your character spent his whole life studying religion, why would he not know it? Well, sure, but... Maybe you don't have one of those in the party, and
0: you know you don't have one of those in the party. You know nobody studied religion, nobody's well, good at it, and you and should and plan better. Maybe, but you don't. Know, you didn't, and then you you open the book and you read it, and you automatically get this esoteric esoteric information, and it feels very much like you're being hammered on the skull with blood. Well, I think that's I think that's railroading, hook. right? Because, well, like, right. it's so, poor planning. But then in that situation, you either... I mean, poor planning on, on the player's part.
1: More on the DM's part. You know no one in your party had, like, was proficient enough in religion to decipher that text. You probably should have put something else. Yeah, maybe. Unless you intended for it to remain hidden.
0: Or you're a have to go
1: find DM
0: a who has not a lot of time to do homebrew <laughs> and is running from off the shelf, and the shelf <laughs> assumes you have a party of well-balanced whatever. This is a
1: great point. So, yeah, if you're running a pre... Uh, pre-written adventure, you're gonna have more issues with this because you're right. not sitting down and, and essentially designing everything from the ground up for your party. That's a great point.
0: Right. So I mean exactly. And and so of course if you have and, and every DM has agency to decide, you know, you could say instead of a history check, it's a religion check or an arcana check or an intelligence check. That's one thing one thing that 5e does really much better. It lets you get kind of pulpily, you know, in a pulpy yeah. way closer to understand how you can get the information or pass the lock or whatever you, you need your characters to do. Better than prior editions, where it was very much more segmented. And I'll give you an example. In second edition, elves, just by walking secret within doors. 10 feet of a secret door, got a roll to see if they noticed it, just by being an elf. Just because you were an elf. I think it was like a 10% chance. Yeah, like it was a, a 10% chance, 10% I'm pretty chance. sure. Yeah. So, you know, like, you could be the best rogue in the world, <laughs> and then an elf just walked oh, by honey. and is like, hey, look, you missed that. Just because you didn't look, you know? You're like fuck you, elves! God, you guys are so. Mm, so I much, hate you so much. Why are you so much better than everyone? <laughs> oh, no. God, elves. So passive perception, I think, is a good replacement for that. It sort of it, it definitely changes the tone, uh, but I, I think that also it. I guess the gripe that I have around it is that it's harder to build a character around passive skills than it is around active skills. Well, I mean,
1: I, I think you're you should always build your character around active skills. I think the passive skills are just a way for the DM to. You know, speed up the exposition, make it smoother, plan better, and kind of lead you into that action with a clue or a hook or a warning. Yeah, I mean, that that makes they, should, s- they shouldn't replace our Eclipse Path act activity. That makes
0: sense from a from an activity perspective, right? Like, I'm, I want to choose active skills, and here's the gripe, and this is probably just a Skylar thing, but. As an engineer, I'm like, no, I want to build a character that has very high passive skills, you know, that has a bunch of those. So it's like a sensor. I, so I can walk into a room and know this and know that. I and totally know this. agree.
1: Like when I play video games and I'm building a character, exactly. I love passive skills. Right, exactly. Because I don't, it's a set and forget. I don't have to worry about right. it. It's great. I you notify
0: I mean, me when a surprise arrives. you notify me when a door is there. it's it's
1: like it's, oh, it's very handy. It's, give me the most information. Well, because it's passive, you as a player, you don't have to worry about it and you can you focus more on your actions. If you're like, I am now immune to poison, well, shit, you don't have to worry about managing your antidotes. you don't have to worry about taking them with you because right. you got that sweet passive skill right So you don't you can focus on other actions and those actions. Um, I think if you're gonna use passive skills, you should use them properly. You know, you can use them as binary, proficient or not is a really good way to do it. Or you can use the 10 plus modifier approach that we see with perception. And I challenge you, listeners, don't be afraid of not rolling the dice. (laughs) Try it out. Try it out and see. Because you will have players like myself who are like, oh my gosh, my choices of character creation are being honored here instead of defiled with this bullshit knowledge roll um so i think it's something that you're gonna it's something that people love to argue about a lot because people like to roll dice and a lot i personally think a lot of people are a little too addicted to rolling the die i mean gambling and Humans it's are addicted to exactly gambling. it's we talked about that earlier. it's an expected thing so you're gonna have to find your own balance and that's gonna depend on your players some people are gonna want more randomness some people are gonna want less it's 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 something you'll have to practice It's something that I personally, as a DM, am still working on, trying to use passive skills more properly. Um, And the best thing you can do there is make sure you have your players' passive skills.
0: I think in my, yes. I mean, maybe write them down in your notes and see what they have. You probably have a sense of it as a DM if you've run a bunch of sessions with your players. Uh, The only advice I would have about this is actually, it's related, but it, it, it kind of inverts the way to look at it, which is, it's very simply, know the players in your group that need to roll the dice. And there are some players, most players don't care. Most players, they're, they're interested to play the game. They appreciate automatic information. They appreciate free stuff. You know, they'll play along. But there are some players that will show up at your table who, and if you're one of these players, know it about yourself, you know, and maybe talk to your DM about it and like, hey, I really like rolling the dice. I really want to, that's something I, I like out of this. And those these players, in my experience, we talked about players last session this could be any one of them, you know, uh, and they're not very common, but give it to them. Casual gamers often fit into this. Butt kickers often fit into this, right? Just, they want to just like roll it. They want to, they may be optimized so that, they built a character. If they roll a one, they can re-roll. Plus, they also have a big stack. They built you know? that character to roll some dice. Yeah, right. So, know who that is at your table. Give them the opportunity to roll. You don't need to have a fiat rule for all players. You can make them yeah. roll for a knowledge check, and you can give it to the wizard sitting next to them who doesn't want to roll just without any knowledge check. Like, it doesn't matter. It's your game. Yeah,
1: I, definitely. You want to make sure that you're catering to your players a little bit, but there will be times where you still have to be ready to say no because they're like, oh, can I roll this? And it's like... If they have no chance of succeeding, if they're wasting resources definitely, stupidly, definitely. They're like, you can be like, no, I just told you everything you saw in the room, or no, that's not a realistic possibility, let's move on. So don't be afraid to say no when people ask to roll. Generally as a DM, you should tell people when to roll. You will have players who ask, and that's fine, but don't be afraid to say no because there's going to be times where it's just like it's a waste of everybody's time because they're trying some impossible bullshit that just can't happen. Yeah. You know,
0: what do you think about fudging dice? This is always a controversial oh, man. topic.
1: So we talked about this a little bit with Spiel, right? Like fudging dice goes back to the the start of war games. Like right. people have always done it. And for me, the dice don't represent the fate of the game, right? They're a tool like we've talked about. another tool just like the rules. It's a random number generator to kind of help you move things along. Um, for me, I really like to roll in the open. And I really prefer not to fudge dice rolls. Like for me, I'm not a DM who plays with a screen. I, I, most of the time, I will avoid fudging a die roll. I'm not a hundred percent against it because I think it's ridiculous to be like a hundred percent in an absolute camp on anything in this game. Mm. Most of the time, but I kind of pull my philosophy from this from the AD&D DMG, the Dungeon Master's Guide from AD&D, and they have a section on dice. This is the second edition, and I would like to read it verbatim because people get all up there, like, oh. It, panties in a bunch about like oh this guy's fudging dice rolls and i will tell you if i as a teenager playing this game found out that my gm was fudging die rolls i would be so pissed i would be like this guy's oh, totally. cheating screw this guy it feels like i don't this have any agency in the game. he's cheating whereas now if my dm did that i'd be fine with it because i know they're probably doing it to better curate the experience for me but let me read this this is from the ad and d the first dungeon master's guide and this is what they said in regards to dice It is your right to control the dice at any time and to roll the dice for the players. You might wish to do this to keep them from knowing some specific fact. You also might wish to give them an edge in finding a particular clue like a secret door that leads to a complex of monsters and treasures that will be especially entertaining (laughs) for the players of the DM. Who knows? However, here's my favorite part. You do have every right to overrule the dice at any time if there's a particular course of events that you would like to have occur. In making such a decision, though, you should never seriously harm the party or a non-player character with your actions. So there we have it, the creators of the game, from one dungeon master to another, telling you it's okay to fudge die rolls.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think this is basically, this is rule zero, right? This is the same thing as them saying, listen, if you're going to take on the responsibility of running a game, understand that you have the power to do with it whatever you want, and you should exercise that power. And you should do it only when you need to, and in specifically a not harmful way, which that's just good game advice.
1: It's It's just great, great advice. For you, I know you also don't play with a screen like myself, and you roll out in the open. How do you approach fudging die rolls?
0: Yeah, so this was a conscious choice of mine. And when I started DMing, I mean, sometime many years ago, we we used the books as the DM screen. We had a DM screen, but you'd use the DMG and you'd tilt it up and that was your DM screen. you roll behind it and it was, you know, equal parts... You'd roll the die and you'd see what would come up, but also your friends would watch how you rolled the die. They'd watch, the your, die. Face. They'd you watch your face. They'd watch your face and be like, oh how my God, how many, he's rolling a lot. So you had to like have a poker face and you didn't want to get shouted down for what you rolled or anyway. Um, so I kept a DM screen for a long time and uh, I just rolled mostly behind the, the screen and would narrate what happened in a very classic kind of affair. And then I had one friend of mine who would play in a game of mine and he would also run a game that I would play in. And he didn't use a DM screen. And at least he didn't use a DM screen that was physical. He used a different kind. It was the first time I had seen this, and and I, I thought, this is really interesting. He rolled all the time for everything and a bunch of times for stuff that he didn't talk about. So he you know he would just like roll the d twenty. oh, that's the worst. periodically right in front of us, you know. And we wouldn't know. And he would be narrating. And the demon arises from the pit and it climbs out of the slimy sides and it brandishes a big sword made of fire. And then he rolls like two d20s and he like waits for a moment. He go, and then he thinks, you know, and he goes, and then another demon falls out of the sky. And you're like, you're not sure if they were connected or not. And he would just, he was always like at various points rolling dice. And so you never really knew what he was rolling in, per, in pertinence to you. Like, was he rolling for the... Sometimes it was very clear, like he rolls to attack you and he'd roll the die. And he had no qualm about rolling in front of everybody. And that was new. And I was like, wow, he doesn't... He really doesn't... use a screen. He doesn't give a shit. This guy gives no fucks. He's just rolling for a, right... <laughs> oh, that guy got a one. And then he would narrate his way out of it. And I was impressed. Uh, but I saw that he, the screen that he used was a smoke screen. You know, he would just roll all kinds of dice all the time. So you never really knew I you like had that. to trust him in what he was doing. And he also was a pretty good narrator and he had interesting ideas and complicated characters. So it worked, it totally worked. But it got me thinking about the nature of rolling dice and how much trust I felt for him, even though he rolled a bunch of dice, he didn't know what they meant because he did it all in front of my eyes.
1: It's funny, right? Because it's completely random, but because it's in front of you, it's like, oh, okay, I trust Stupid this. Stupid human tricks. Right? Whereas right. the funny thing is if he was actually rolling behind a screen and curating the experience more to like make sure you were enjoying it, like, and you kind of knew he was doing that, you might feel betrayed. Even though you would have had a better experience if you didn't know. Yeah, maybe. But so uh,
0: on a flip side, just to provide an interesting counterpoint, I've had players in my game, we talked about this before. Where I let them pre-roll their dice because we wanted yeah, to speed I've seen up this. combat, I've seen this. and they would roll. They would show up. They made a really diligent point to show up at the earlier than everybody else. there's like two or three of them, and they would have their little pads mm-hmm. of paper, and they would sit at the table with me as I'm preparing for the game. And they would roll all the dice in front of me and write them all down in front of me because they valued that they weren't cheating. That, that it wanted, was random. It was. They wanted me to know that they were rolling yeah. legitimately, and then they would cross off the dice as they would come. But here's the thing they could look at the
1: numbers they had rolled and they knew what would be coming up. So they could plan their actions and metagame, like, oh, I'm going to fail this next roll, whatever it might be.
0: And we had, like, the honor system, so it's like, you can't, you know, obviously don't do anything stupid like that or that ruins anybody's fun, but there's obviously some metagame and we're just going to trust you, but that does play into it some.
1: Yeah, for me, I've I've seen DMs do that with perception, particularly, Mm -hmm. where they have their players roll ahead of time. And for me, I don't like that. I think it ruins the tension, personally. Like, if I'm gonna have you roll, I'm gonna tell you to roll. Otherwise, we're not gonna worry about it. Uh, if you need to do that because rolls are slowing the game down so much, you are a either playing three point five or <laughs> b you're you're having people people roll for things they don't need to roll for. Yeah. I mean, this is just personally probably one of my DM pet peeves, but like you don't need to roll for everything. That's why you have a DM. Like, if you if otherwise don't go play a computer game where you don't everything is rolled.
0: So I think that on that note, you know, a part of the having a DM and being in meat space with each other and not playing it as a, a computer game is there's this one part we haven't talked about with the dice in mo- and this is true is of modern dice, metal dice, polyurethane dice, any kind of dice you want. And it's the superstition that players have around dice. And yeah. I'll give you a really clear example. My first dice that I bought were a reflection of the attitude of the character I was playing who was And I hadn't read any of Ed Greenwood's or R.A. Salvatore's novels, an elf ranger, a wood elf ranger with twin long swords. Okay. And he had a fiery temper, so I got...
1: you didn't have a panther companion, I right? I didn't. I didn't. Okay. No, no companions. You're in the clear as far as I'm no concerned. Companions.
0: Nothing to do with Drist. It was just a... Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, in 2nd edition, you're going to play a ranger. You're going to be an elf, and you're, you're going to have do two wields. swords. You're going to do-wield. the long <laughs> sword is better than the scimitar, period. Anyway, uh, so I picked the dice because they represented his character. He had a fiery character, and so they had orangey dice, and they were a particular kind. And... Now, you know, you go to any gaming table anywhere, and you're going to watch players when they roll a one banish their dice. And maybe some of them pull them out of their bin and they train them by setting them on the topmost numbers so <laughs> that they're, they're inclined to roll that. Oh, or, man. you know, they, they have to have uh, a color of dice that represents a specific dice tower. Yeah, I mean, right, everybody, right. <laughs> I mean, if I, if I build a dice tower and it doesn't I'm, fall, then
1: I'm guilty of being a dice tower builder. What
0: do you think the, that so? All right, we've talked about the role of dice in randomizing and in gambling, but what is the role of dice as it pertains as to our superstitions? And, as our that's players, that's a great in the
1: game. question because I know I definitely have to have my dice match my character. Yeah, absolutely, it's vital.
0: And there are some dice that I'm willing to DM I with, and there are some that I will correct, not. DM Correct. I have with. my set of DM, DM dice,
1: and then I have my set like these. These aren't for DMing. They don't. They don't
0: have it. And They're not cut out for it. I'm they don't the, have the chutzpah the DM needs out of and,
1: it. I think it's because I like to have forbidding dice as my DM dice, <laughs> but you know I'm the least superstitious person. I'm the eternal skeptic, right? And even here, I'm like, nope, nope, this dice isn't feeling good today. I'm switching to this one.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's such it's such a it's such a silly thing. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's, it's so, so funny. Core of it,
1: and people always get obsessed with the randomness of their dice, which you can test if you have usually like polythe- polyurethane or plastic dice. You can test it with a float test salt water yeah essentially and you want to use usually you want to use Epsom salt because you really do need to get a lot of salt to dissolve for some dice because some won't float unless you really do that you may have to heat it up and mix it up and let it cool whatever Um, but it's pretty easy because once you have it there you can kind of the die you kind of essentially quote-unquote roll it in the water Mm. and if it's unbalanced it will literally just keep coming up Mm -hmm. on that same number Mm -hmm. every time Uh, the other thing if it's a die one of the die that you can see through right that's transparent you can actually see a lot of the time imperfections in those die, those little bubbles and things. Yeah, they look cool, but they're making your dice less random.
0: One of the things that's interesting about the ma- manufacture of dice that I learned is how not random many of them are. Oh, yeah. Especially the polyurethane ones. And, and I have so many of these, and I'm sure all of us do, and they're, they're great, and I love them. But it has to do with how they – the injection mold them and then how they, they round the edges and soften them up and then, you know, they have like numbers they paint on them and they put them basically in a big tumbler is how they do it with other dice and rocks and it rounds them off and smooths them and polishes. It's called polishing the dice and it it does so more or less evenly and emphasis on the more or less. But it does make you less random. Well, some of them are very not r- very very random, and some of them are very not
1: random. It's like the casino dice we were talking about. Yes. They're made to be perfectly precise. Those ones are made with very precise. straight edges. And if they continued to run it in
0: these tumblers and polish the dice, eventually they'd come out round, like a river stone, you know? So they decide at some point to stop, depending upon the level of roundedness they want. And uh, as an example, one of my friends bought some frosted glass dice once upon a time, and they were very rounded. And they rolled better than most of the other dice, but they didn't roll for him very well. And he spent a lot of money on these fancy frosted glass dice. And so we started looking up, like, why? Are dice weighted? What is this? And that's how we came up with, you know, that there are some manufacturers who care very much about the precision of the dice. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we rejected that there were different dice precisions outright because <laughs> superstition about dice, obviously. Of course, of You're not going to tell me my, rice is, no. my dice is going to be bad. I'm going to train it to be good because I spent $50 <laughs> on this set. So It has, so to, it be has good. to be It has to be good.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important thing to consider when you get your, when you buy dice is one, you can get the polyhedrals versus the long dice, those like prism crystal shaped ones, which they can be cool. They can be fun. Um, sometimes they can be a pain to read what the top number is. And the other thing is materials, right? Polyurethane are generally the cheapest. They're the easiest to test if they're random. Yeah. But they're the most likely to have mistakes. Yeah. Um, if you're getting bone, it's not going to be that random of a dice, but it's awesome. Um, and you will find some that are pretty decent. I found some on Artisan dice that are, you know, probably the best you're going to find. Right. Um, wood dice, that's totally going to depend on the make. But generally, wood isn't 100% consistent it throughout a it, right. right? It's not going to be the same density and whatnot throughout the whole piece of wood. I mean, if it did, it wouldn't look very cool, probably. So, that's when you can... There are wooden dice. They're usually very expensive because it's hard to make any that are precise. You will find dice made of stone and precious metals, which are going to be really expensive, but they yeah. look super, super cool. Yeah, You can find those. And the honestly, the ones that are going to probably be the most accurate, aside from a virtual RNG, random number generator, is going to be metal die. Yeah. Metal dice um, are generally the most accurate because you can have the machine made to a level of precision that you can't get otherwise. And you can also make sure the material is consistent all the way through, and there's no impurities or, or inclusions.
0: Of course, I mean... I think the most important thing about the dice, yes, they should add an element of randomness. But also, in defense of weighted dice, heathen words, right? But, but actually, the most important part of the game is the satisfaction you get, if you're, if you're talking about the dice, from rolling the dice. You know, you want to toss the die and feel good about it. So, from that perspective, if you toss a die and it comes up one more often than it should, pitch it. Don't just, like, banish it. <laughs> Get the hell rid of it. You know, you want to feel good both in the tossing of the die as it clatters oh. into a die bowl or on the table or wherever, and also in the experience of what happens with that die. Maybe you're one of those players who really likes it when you botch, in which case you can have all of my
1: Botch dice. I have a little pen. See, I'll I hand them to you. I could. I could just. I keep them. I can't throw them away. They're like my children.
0: No, they, they contaminate the whole set. I resent if them. the D twenty <laughs> is a bad D twenty, and it rolls a one. I banish the whole set, all of them, not just that one. All of them. Oh gone. man, the D twenty mm-hmm. is the leader of the dice. Obviously, if he fails, you all die. You all die. You all
1: are exiled. <laughs> I'm a bad dad. So I know these days, I buy more metal dice than I do polyurethane dice. They're so beautiful. I mean. They last. They're pretty random. Um, recently, I've been really liking Die Hard Dice. So, shout out to them.
0: You introduced me to this, and they have more money of mine than they should. Oh, and me too. I'm totally satisfied. But, and
1: talk about customer service. They do a really good job. Let's just take a second they and do a really good job. Shout out. Just res- Die Hard Dice, you do a great job. We love you.
0: I think <laughs> that, I mean, I have a lot of the old Chessex style, but I think that there's really something. And a lot of players like, do I need dice? Do I need to buy my own dice. I don't know. It seems like such a tchotchke. I mean, it is. Don't get me wrong, but one of the rituals I love about this game, part of it, is every time a player comes, the first time they're going to play, a, you know, and they they decide I'm going to play this game. I like this game. They have to go dice shopping.
1: Choose your weapon.
0: Right. They have to pick their dice set. But it's
1: it's really cool to see a new player pick their dice.
0: It's a very deeply personal choice, it's a big and they deal. they bring them and they show up with them, and, and they're, they're like, like, I got
1: my own dice. Look at what they
0: look like, and they're proud, and it's and it's they're great. I love every single time it happens. So you know, I think it's. It's part
1: of the fun of the game because totally. it, it
0: doesn't make sense necessarily. It's just like a...
1: it, it, Whatever appeals to you, you yeah. know? Yeah. You can also check out Level Up Dice. They have some really cool dice made out of metal, uh, different precious stones. Um, they're not cheap, but they're pretty, pretty darn solid. Uh, Artisan Dice is another uh, company in that realm of things. They make bone, wood, stone, metal. They're not cheap, again, but... You know, if you're looking for specialty dice, you're going to pay more. Yeah. Because you can hop on Amazon and find dice really cheap if you want. Uh, it really just kind of comes down to what you're looking for.
0: Cheap dice look cheap at the table. Yeah.
1: And another one that's become popular that make pretty good dice are Kraken dice. I personally, though, however hate how they've replaced the number 20 with their logo so i will not use them oh. I, huh. I hate dice that do that because for me seeing that number 20 show up really means something yeah like it's exciting and if i have to take this extra step to translate the picture of the kraken which i do like <laughs> uh into a 20 it, i lose that like split second excitement you know like when that 20 shows up everyone's like oh, yeah boom. when a symbol shows up you're like wait oh yeah that means 20 oh, that's a yeah 20. cool nice, great, right and it's silly, but for me, that that's like one of my things. Like, it's I, an argument against using um, magic dice for, for D&D. In the same realm of things, I will not use dice that are not legible. I hate dice where you can hardly see the number and you're oh, like, oh, yeah. what is it? Like, I can't make it out. And I, that probably comes from like me buying dice when I was a kid that were hard to read or that the number, remember the numbers would wear off yeah. on those. that's ugh, I hate that. I, I don't want to have to like, I want to know immediately the, stop, the second it stops moving.
0: I had friends, well, we were, I mean, teenage boys, right? We all would get all our different dice, and some of them would color in with pencil the white of the number so you couldn't read it very well, just because they wanted to be able to fudge between a 13 and 18, a 16 and 19, you know, any one of those oh, was the highest of those. Terrible. Why is that guy's dice so, why are he always rolling so hot? And then there's like the other guy who would roll the die and let it stop and then pick it up before anybody else could see it and tell Uh. us the number that he got. And I'm like, we all know you're cheating. We know you're cheating. We all know he's cheating. Stop cheating. Right. Please stop cheating. (laughs) But I think that that's, that's an interesting part about it too is like. The, by the addition of dice, by the removal of complete agency from the players, there's this inclination to try to hack the game, to try to work the game. It to, does
1: create that.
0: You know? It's it's part of dice games. And yeah, maybe we yeah. have like... Like I do at my table, I have bins. You roll in the <laughs> bin. That helps, hopefully, from it rolling off the table. That's the goal of it. But also what it does is it helps remember for all of us that let's roll in the bin where everybody can see where there's light on also it. Also,
1: so the metal dice don't ruin the nice table. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Yeah. <laughs> I guess, you know. But yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. Wow. Well, I don't have anything else. I think that's pretty much all we have to say on the roll of the dice.
0: So, I mean, dice, I think, are one of the key parts of the game. And I I, I don't want to imagine they're ever going to not be. You know, the D20 is iconic for the game. And I think that the designers very succinctly realized that rolling that die in particular is it's a, it's a very good field to it,
1: you know, like water it, out of your hand. <laughs> Plato was right Plato. about that one,
0: but I think that this is true too. Of like, why d twenty maybe is more popular than a lot of the other games because you have one iconic, very solid, interesting die. A d twenty, bam, it's different. Rolling. It gives you some results right like, out of the gates, as opposed to like rolling the funny, weird fate dice. And I love fate, but it's not as satisfying.
1: Rolling D6s is not exciting unless no. you're rolling
0: stats. D10, even like in a White Wolf game where you have like, I'm going to roll five D10 and I need two successes out of this. And I'm like, yeah, all right, I get it. You, you enjoy rolling a big thing of dice, but there's something really, I think, powerful about, wham, well, I yeah, wing that ro- D20 into the bin and then, oh, rolling that 20. Rolling
1: more dice makes each roll less important, yes. matter less. And yes. so when you have that one big die, and this is why I, I personally actually have a D100, it is not random due to how geometry works. <laughs> and, you know, you can sit down and figure that out. It's not random. However, I still use it because it's awesome. Because it's fun. It's fun. It takes forever to stop rolling. So it creates this great tension of everyone's like, oh, what's it going to stop on? I don't know. And it also is uh, essentially a giant golf ball, which is, is just hilarious. So
0: It has a bias toward the high 70s and low
1: 80s. Probably, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's where the good stuff is on the random tables.
0: Okay, so that wraps it up for the roll of dice in our games. Stay tuned for next time.